0: Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Turrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Turrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Treating Perfectionism: Three Therapy Strategies, or How I Helped Sandy Beat the Perfectionism That Was Ruining Her Life. So Sandy sat there vacuuming any positivity out of the atmosphere, and she was, by her own admission, intolerant because, in her words, other people. Are so often stupid. So I sat across from her and really concentrated on not being stupid. And I, I asked her. I said, "Do you ever feel that you're stupid, or is it just other people? Or is that a stupid question?" Okay. And uh, she said, um, uh, "No, no, no, no. I can be stupid, and I hate that even more because you know. Well, I know I'm bright and intelligent. So if I'm stupid, it's even worse." Okay. So. This was the double bind that she was in. I asked for for an example of her being stupid and she said, well, I binge, you know, not so often now, but I waste money on food. I'm just going to sick up and it's so stupid. Sandy had been binge eating off and on for 25 years and she felt she had it under control now, mostly, but still did it sometimes. And her occasional all or nothing attitude to food carried over destructively to other parts of her life. Her mind was critical, and her stupidity radar was set to high. If someone says the wrong thing, that's it. I feel like I just don't want anything to do with them anymore, she said. Everybody gets one chance, and if they blow it, that's it. So in another life, you could have been a fascist dictator, I thought. But outwardly, I just looked at her and nodded encouragingly in the therapist's default setting way of nodding, as if she'd heard my thoughts. She then said, people often find me intimidating. No kidding. Again, without actually speaking. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Though you might not immediately turn to Sandy for some friendly support, I could see that she was a tortured soul. Something needed to change. And in there, like a small, fragile flame of flickering light from a candle in a faraway place in the deepest of darkest nights, was her humanity and I could see it just about. It's lonely being perfect, especially when you're not. Sandy was lonely. Other people irritated her, yes, but she also irritated herself even more. Friendships and budding relationships had evaporated over the years, usually because other people couldn't stand the bite of her constant judgment and unforgiving standards. And she couldn't stand them either. Or she quickly found people's imperfections, not a sign of their humanity, but of their willful idiocy, and then she rejected them. But Sandy didn't come to see me because she wanted help with perfectionism. She was sick and tired of being alone. She wanted to feel less anxious and needed to finally escape her occasional bulimic pattern once and for all. She needed people but she pushed people away. She was borderline depressed much of the time, pessimistic, cynical, and unfulfilled in her career as a book illustrator. What's wrong with having high standards? Being solution-focused and driven can have us achieving wonderful things, of course, in life. But for Sandy and many others, this approach gets so over-applied that it actually starts to block achievement and enjoyment of life. Sandy had always learned fast, but while still a child had ripped up her music sheets when her piano practice didn't go as she'd planned. Even though she'd shown great promise and been the best in her class, she decided piano was not for her and never went back to it. This wasn't so strange. It was perfectly in line with the family ideology. Her parents valued achievement above all else and being the best at everything. If you weren't the best, move on. There's no point in doing it. And they passed these attitudes onto to their children, including Sandy. Nowadays, she struggled to um, scrape by with occasional illustration commissions, but still would sometimes destroy an illustration she'd been working on for reasons other people probably couldn't even see, in her words. And she said, My life has been full of false starts. If something's wrong or doesn't fit how I think it should be, I tend to give up on it immediately. I've had so many opportunities I should have pursued. I've stopped even trying to do stuff. I feel maybe hard or that I won't be good at. Okay, that's what she told me. Sandy needed, of course, to relax her standards so she could achieve more because perfectionism was ruining her life. The tyranny of perfectionism. Researchers have found evidence that perfectionism may be linked to the onset of eating disorders, such as bulimia and anorexia. See reference 1 and 2. And I suspect that the extremist and emotional thinking of maladaptive perfectionism can also contribute to the onset and maintenance of some depressions. Depressive thinking tends to be all or nothing, absolutist, black and white, extremist and pretty unforgiving, especially of the self I worked long and hard with Sandy hypnotically, seeking to unhook the residual bulimic trance that still caught her out sometimes and to improve her stress management generally in life. We also looked at building her social and relationship skills, and I use metaphor with her to develop an appreciation of other people above and beyond what they were good at. Okay. We looked at the inherent value of things. So here are three ways uh, I helped her, Sandy, go from extremist intolerant to fair and humane in her attitudes to herself and other people. So firstly, we can describe the pattern. Sandy is an analytical thinker and likes to know why she is even talking about something. So I described how conditioning personality, inflexible thought and all or nothing thinking drive strong emotion. After all, Hitler didn't tend to talk in shades of grey at the Nuremberg rallies. I told her about Dr. Martin Seligman's research on how learning to challenge all-or-nothing thinking helped children who were at risk of becoming depressed avoid depression. See reference 3. I also asked Sandy to imagine a world in which no mistakes were ever made. Everything was always done entirely correctly, and skills were picked up instantly by everybody. She hypnotically envisaged this perfect world for half an hour. And when I asked her what it felt like, she said, it's cold. There's no humor or fun. No, no satisfaction from having overcome adversity or challenge. It's hell, she said. Chronic perfectionism is always a case of underperceiving reality. What's been called straight-line thinking. So we needed to deal with this. Two, encourage a wider context. If we consider experiences in too narrow a context, we miss much of the fine detail of life. For example, um, playing a friendly game with relatives at Christmas or some other get-together is a chance to have fun, be creative, laugh and bond with significant people in your life, a chance to help other people feel good when they win, a way of communicating with loved ones, an opportunity to be creatively stretched regardless of who wins. But a chronic uh, perfectionist may miss all these wider contextual elements of playing a game. So when I asked Sandy what the point of a competition, any competition was, she immediately replied, well, to win, of course. It was a genuine revelation for her when we explored other possible purposes or byproducts of a competition and how... uh, She was intrigued to read new ideas on kitextia, or context blindness. She'd always thought, what's the point of going for a walk? Unless it was to get exercise or actually get someplace. What's the point? Was her standard response to any idea or suggestion, as if everything could be whittled down to one thing. What's the pointism is often a sign that someone's thinking is too straight-line. Overcoming perfectionism sharpens perception, and makes it more flexible and context-aware, while also increasing humanity to oneself and other people. Three, encourage downtime. All-or-nothing, black-and-white, extremist, perfectionistic thinking is depressing. It's tiring to be on such high alert all the time, with perfectionism producing high levels of emotion and churned-up feelings and life can feel meaningless unless it's results-driven. So even the time after a successful endeavour can feel depressing to the perfectionist. Any free time isn't valued or tolerated very well in this repressive psychological regime. Sandy's life, if we saw it as a landscape, would have been full of sharp edges and sudden uh, precipitous drops with towering mountain peaks. What she needed was a few places of respite, some oasis, some comfortable flat bits on which to rest and not feel like she'd been running ultramarathons, which was a hobby of hers, manically cleaning her apartment or dieting. I told Sandy that I wanted her to succeed at failing. I talked about humanity to her. I talked about being human and humane and how becoming comfortable with failure is the first step to success, social or any other kind. She needed downtime from having to be seen as perfect uh, by other people and the best all the time. So I asked her to meet up with a friend she hadn't seen for a while, a woman who'd stayed friendly across the years. And she was to tell this friend a story of how she, Sandy, had failed in some small way. This was her task. And at the next session, Sandy told me that she'd actually done this because, after all, she she liked to do what she said she would do. And she'd met up with this friend and told her how she, Sandy, had joined Mensa a few years ago and had arrived a day early to their first first social event. And at the time, Sandy had been mortified. But while telling her friend about this episode, something weird suddenly began to happen. Sandy relaxed, and they both laughed at the irony. Mensa, for high-performing people, she'd arrived a day early. In the end, we were both crying with laughter and it was wonderful, she said. And you know, she said, I had to carry out your task, Mark, because if I hadn't admitted to a failure, I would have failed the task. So this is a classic therapeutic double bind. I kept asking Sandy to make small mistakes and practice laughing about them and tell other people about them later. And I showed her some research that showed that people like you more when they see you make small mistakes. And, and of course, people did seem to like her more as they found that they could relax with her. But she was human. She didn't make them feel bad by comparison. She got more work. She started another business and was, in her words, prepared to happily fail. And she eventually found someone to love and to be loved by. So the distant, fragile candle flame became a beam of sunny warmth as the real Sandy released herself from the self-imposed repressive regime and into the light of day. So, I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com/slash blog. That's unk.com/slash blog. <laughs>